0: everybody, this is Mike Van Meter. Welcome to the Mike Van Meter Show. And this is your one-stop shop for everything having to do with Americanism, conservatism, patriotism, and really just frankly the right way to live your life. That's the way I look at it. And as you know, we are now into the 2024 election season. And I have thrown my rate my hat into the race for the 11th Congressional District, which is Northern Virginia, mainly uh, Fairfax County or predominantly Fairfax County. And it's going to be a very, very tough race. I'm going to be running against Jerry Connolly, who, uh, along with Joe Biden, has single-handedly tried to destroy um, our country as we know it. And uh, I'm just one of those people that cannot sit back and watch that happen. And uh, under no circumstances am I going to allow... This particular congressional seat go and uh, unch- unchallenged by uh, a Republican, and so I'm I'm in the race. As many of you know, I ran for the Virginia State Senate here in 2023 and did not win that election, but learned a lot and uh, it had just grateful for the opportunity and and I can't say it enough for all of you out there that supported me and contributed to the campaign, gave of your time and and talents and and support. You know, I just uh, love you guys. God bless all of you, and we're back in it again. You know, I'm I'm about service. As you know, I've spent uh, time in, in the Navy, you know, as a helicopter pilot, as a police officer, FBI agent, and I work in a hospital. And to me, this is just a continuation of service, running for office. It's just you know a way of giving back to the nation that gave to me and I'm very grateful, and I want to continue the service, and today I want to bring on the show uh, a gentleman named Cameron Hamilton, and he is running in the Virginia 7th District, so that's a little bit uh, south and west of where I live here in the 11th, and he is also a man of service. He's a man of faith, and he is running for the congressional seat down there on the Republican ticket, and I want want all of you to get to know him, and you're going to hear more from him as the campaign goes on, and we're going to talk about... The vision for the United States and uh, what Cameron's plan is to to do with that. And so with that, thanks for, for coming on the program, Cameron. And um, I know you're a busy man, just like we all are, but you're very, very busy and I appreciate your time. Um, or you taking the time to come on the show? So welcome.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's a privilege to be here. We're all busy, but busy with good things. we got a country to save after
0: all. Absolutely. You know what? So tell us a bit about yourself and um, and then your vision for how you're going to do that. Because I know you and I have talked uh, offline a number of times about your vision. And uh, you know what? Uh, this is the time to put it out to people because, you know, folks, 2024, this is going to be a pivotal election. I know everybody says that every election is the most important election out there, but you know what? I actually think this one is. And so tell us a bit about you and what your plan is for the future.
1: Yeah, thanks for that question. So ultimately, this is kind of a, a race where we get to search deep within our soul. We get to look at what kind of a people do we want to become. I think over the past several years what we've seen is this growing and intense hurt and anguish within our culture. Our people are really fractioned, we're being divided even further and again radical, divisive critical theory is frankly pushing us into these tribal groups that are really disingenuous and that don't accurately reflect the demographics and the great diversity of opinion and thought that we have in our nation. So. I'm running as a constitutional conservative. I'm running as a member of the Republican Party, but I'm very, very clear that I'm not a Republican, therefore I am a a conservative. I'm a constitutional conservative first, and therefore, right now, the party seems to represent that. But I'm also a common sense kind of a Republican, a different sort of Republican that has no problem acknowledging when we get it right, but also when we get it wrong. I think the humility and empathy is grossly missing in today's era. So if I had to describe the personality that I would hope to exhibit as a legislator, Lord willing, if elected, to have the fierceness of a lion, but also the, the charm of Reagan, I think we need to be negotiators. We need to also seek to be peacemakers where possible. Um, the stakes are high and it becomes difficult to see that. But what I'm hoping for is that our races and all of these different you know races across the United States would bring about and promulgate an environment in this country in which people can live Rich, free, and blessable lives. In fact, I even wrote a mission statement about my campaign. What's the goal? Goal is not so much for myself to have victory. The goal is to ensure that the people of Virginia 7th, whom I'm seeking to represent, whom I'm asking for the honor to represent, the goal is to ensure that they live rich and blessable lives without government intrusion and with the uh, all-afforded abilities to be prosperous and to be successful in their avenues to remove the intrusion of government and to ultimately restrain itself so that they can do as they see fit. Um, And so the mission statement here is, well, look, I think I'm the candidate to do that. I have very clear perspectives and a philosophical argument with how and why, but conservatives and really just good, decent, moral, faith, family, and freedom people have a crisis on our hands because we've not messaged the ills that society is facing and how we plan to actually remedy them. So I'm running as a common sense kind of candidate. I'm running also as a uh, strong conservative with very heavy libertarian leanings on many different social and many different fiscal issues um, who hopes to bring about an environment to return government back to work for the people.
0: Well, very, very well said. And and by the way, I I love that you say that you're a constitutional conservative because that's Really the way that I I, that's what I consider myself as well. You ever want to know what I believe? uh, Just read the Constitution. There you go. What else is there to know about that? And, you know, and I'll tell you something else, too, that Cameron, I I work with an organization known as uh, American Veterans Vote uh, AVV. And if you've not checked them out, I think uh, all of you should. It's a phenomenal. I sure
1: have. I'm a member.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a phenomenal organization. One of the mission uh, or part of the mission for AVV is to go out and look for um, candidates that have served, i.e. the military first responders. uh, And, you know, finding those people to continue their service like you and I have been doing and take that into the federal government. Because, you know, after all, it's important, I believe, to have people in office that have had skin in the game. You know, you and I both have been recipients of the decisions that have been made by people at the highest levels of our, our government, and it always amazes me how many people go into office and get elected to office that have never uh, been placed in the situation where they've actually had to execute the policies that were uh, put upon them uh, by people in government, and I think that many of the decisions that we're making with our military and foreign policy would not be. Uh, be taking place if if that were the case. Um, you know, when do you do you agree with that? And um, maybe talk a bit about your background and how that background it would carry over into how you would govern if elected.
1: I completely agree with that statement. Um, I actually, Epic Times article where they were asking about this uniqueness of American veterans that are now entering the political sphere as either candidates or as supporting other. You know, fellow candidates through through other kind of on the ground teams and networks and infrastructure. I think it's a wonderful thing. You know, there used to be a time uh, in an era where public service in some manner or another, it was almost frowned upon if you hadn't put your own neck on the line. It was looked at as, you know, really not admirable if you had absconded a responsibility to serve in some manner. And this isn't to say that we should be insulting or degradating to anyone that hasn't worn the uniform or hasn't been a first responder or served the community in that way. But it does mean that it's it's morally virtuous for us to admire some of the character and the nature of why people want to serve. And I think personally there's no better defender of the Constitution, of this great constitutional republic, than those who have been willing to put their own livelihoods at risk to defend it. And so whether you agree with the nature of American wars and conflicts, whether you agree with American foreign policy, the service member believes firmly in the veracity of defending American efforts and obeying the orders of those appointed over them. And so it, for me, it was a privilege and an honor. I served for 10 years as a Navy SEAL, became a hospital corpsman, then became a SEAL through training and stationed up at SEAL teammate in Virginia Beach did four deployments there and then went down to uh, North Carolina to work at a training and instructor command for new and emerging operators in the SEAL teams, as well as other joint special operations soldiers and uh, sailors, airmen and Marines. And so my time there was an absolute blessing. It was an honor to wear the uniform. I also had a family and it was very difficult, the lifestyle, very difficult with the time gone. So at the end of 10 years, I chose to separate my service within active duty and And then I worked as a civil servant with the State Department for five years, traveling overseas under what I call Project Guardian. Guardian was a program that we were uh, attached to special security teams that would protect dignitaries, VIPs, ambassadors, the Secretary of State overseas. It was a privilege and an honor to do that. And then after that time, I served continuously at DHS as a division director for emergency medical services, managing oversight and standards for about Three to 4,000 EMTs scattered throughout the United States and principally along the southern border. So while I've worn the uniform for 10 years, still public service and serving the American people and at their pleasure has been a part of my professional career for the past two decades. Um, And it was an honor and a privilege. And so now I could remain a civil servant, but ultimately the problems that we're facing and the way in which we should solve them require us to enter the political sphere. Because no matter how hard we work, no matter how much we strive and fight, ultimately we have an entire United States government that is subject to the will of the people and through our representative government. And right now it's going in a poor direction. So it was my honor and my privilege to enter this race and into hopes to really work for the American people and specifically the you know, residents of the Virginia 7th Congressional District in an effort to bring forth a limited government approach to ensure that government focuses upon them. So I think it's an excellent thing, the more veterans we have that get involved in politics. I will say if you wanted to, through societal in, you know influence, if you wanted to encourage veterans, veterans not to be active, some of the most patriotic and noble Americans that we have in this nation, um, you would inundate them with regulation and codes and requirements to stay absent from politics. And I think a lot of service members have always assumed, well, I'm wearing the uniform, Therefore, by default, I can't be political. And it really couldn't be farther from the truth. The difference is being respectful and diligent of not representing the government while you're in uniform and being politically active. However, it's a misnomer and completely wrong for us to assume that because you wear the uniform, you are not allowed to be involved in the political process. And so I would encourage a lot of vets out there to be politically active, to attend local events, to speak with your board of supervisors your state and local and even national races and to participate with the same freedoms and privileges bestowed upon any citizen
0: yeah very well said and you know it's funny i have i have run into the same thing um, I live up here in Northern Virginia, which is uh, lots of military, a lot of military and government folks up here. And I run into that all the time. I have people tell me that they, hey, look, I'm in the military. I cannot get involved in, in politics. I'd love to, but I can't. And I want to make it very clear, and I, I think that you, you very well said on your part. You can become politically active. You can help in the campaigns. Um, Now, there are restrictions in what you can do. For example, uh, you couldn't run my campaign. You can't be the campaign manager. You can't go out and give speeches for me. You can't be a proxy. You know, things along those lines. There are definite regulations on that, but it does not mean that you cannot participate. Um, you can go to rallies. Uh, you can go, um, you know, help out in, in various areas, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, setting up booths or Um, you know, supporting us in a a number of different ways, uh, whether it's behind the scenes on the technical aspect, you know, bringing your skill sets to that, you can do that. But I think that it's just been beaten into people's heads in the military, that you can have absolutely no affiliation whatsoever with a campaign. And that's not true. So I I appreciate you saying that. Um, Now, switching to the issues that we have facing us as a nation, we're in perilous times. Now, I know every generation says that, but we really are in perilous times. We have an open border. In fact, today, as a matter of fact, uh, there's a showdown between Governor Abbott in Texas and, and the president and I, I never thought that, you know, after spending over 20 years in the FBI as an agent and spending much of that time making sure their borders were secure and we didn't have terrorists coming here to, to kill us after that, because I was a pre-9-11 agent. I was, I was in the FBI when 9-11 happened and then saw, was witnessed to and participated in all of the work that we did to secure the borders, that what we're doing now down on the border is just uh, I'm shocked. I'm. I don't even know what to say about this. You know, we have a governor that's trying to secure his border because the federal government won't do it, and then we have a president actually suing him and trying to prevent him from securing the borders. And he, he, this damage to the country is. I can't even describe it and the – we have no idea who's come across this border. And seeing what happened over in Israel and knowing that that very same thing could happen here, I, I'm i just – I'm scratching my head. What are your thoughts on, on all of that, Cameron? I mean, do you agree with me that we're in perilous times right now?
1: I would agree that the stakes have really – they've hit an alarming degree of severity. I think that that's fair to say. I don't know about perilous times. I think humankind has survived some pretty atrocious events. I mean, look at the calamities that befell the world under World War II and, you know, even some of the epic battles of World War One, where you talk about tens to tens of thousands of people killed in a single day. Just unbelievable, astonishing human carnage. Having said that, um, the political nature and fabric of this country has been very much uh, pushed to attention where I'm not certain what kind of a future my children will inherit. And what the form and governance of this you know political body looks like for my children when they become of voting age and I say that because you know we traditionally have seen the 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 character and nature of our government and its structure its powers its limitations as defined explicitly by the constitution and not only that but the interpretation of those that wrote it um, and generally in the past there's been a form of consensus to some manner, you know, granted there's spirited debates on specific topics. We can see that quite a bit, Um, but nonetheless, generally it was understood that the founders intent of the document in addition to the document itself uh, was, was, was critical in better understanding it. And now what we've done is we've completely flipped the script for an imbalance of power structures. And what I think now is, we see an incentivized effort to violate law to flagrantly abuse power because of limited scope interpretation and so the the three branches of our government is is quite unique there really isn't many nations like ours really isn't a single nation quite like ours we have three co-equal branches of government which have different responsibilities specifically defined in the constitution and Unfortunately, the founders understood the abuse of power that would be promulgated by a merger of both legislative and executive action, which is why the two branches were, were separated very clearly. And you can read the Federalist Papers with Hamilton, as well as Madison and and, and all and many other contributors, with why those were critical differentiations that had to occur so as to insulate a consolidation of power and prevent it from its likely happening. It it could happen, of course, humankind can do terrible things, but they wanted to set legal boundaries to make it more challenging so that you had to have a much larger coalition and a much larger consolidation of consensus in order to to use more extreme powers. And so what we find now is an executive branch that initially was very limited in scope and the legislature had frankly, most of the authority and autonomy. Well, in today's era, The executive branch dwarfs every other branch of government by a pretty monstrous amount. But to think about this, in the time of the founders, you know, the legislature was far larger than the executive, and now it's quite the opposite. And the executive, not only that, is given deference and through the supremacy clause and other different, you know, legislative actions and and judicial decisions and reviews that have come down, the executive branch has expanded its authority to the point where now we have regulatory agencies putting out guidance and feedback that have punitive recourse for those that don't adhere. Well, by all attempts in nature, punitive recourse against adherence to a specific policy is something that should be reserved explicitly for the legislature, but that's not what we see now. The prime case of that was the EPA versus West Virginia, West Virginia suing in the Supreme court and winning ultimately and properly. So that the EPA did not have broad sweeping authority that it claimed that the constitutional provisions were not granting it such authorities and that it was an infringement on the sovereignty of the state of West Virginia. Um, and so right now we're in a crisis where we need more <clears throat> of these specific actions to occur so as to rein in what I would deem as executive branch intrusion. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we are in extremely unique times. Uh, I won't say that these have never been experienced before because, again, during the time of the Civil War, you had the administration under, uh, obviously, Abraham Lincoln use very broad sweeping authority and power with the Emancipation Proclamation in ways that had not been constitutionally tested. And there were legitimate concerns over that power. Now, morally, ethically, I agree with the decisions that obviously um, Abraham Lincoln you know, came to. Have, having said that, there are limitations on what the executive can and cannot do. And that's what I see as extremely concerning because... What is gasoline to the fire is the fact that we have a significant moral decline of character. And that is extremely problematic because when we have power and power structures which can be used to manipulate human behavior with a poor set of ethics and character, we should prepare ourselves for egregious tyranny. And that is what we are starting to see. Examples of that was Executive Order 14042 and 14043. The mandating of federal government employees and contractors to have a vaccine, even if against their will. Again, the chief executive of this nation violating contractual agreements to require vaccination of its workforce in a manner that was inconsistent with previously agreed upon terms of employment. Um, The founders would have been astonished at that abuse of power, but now it's become fairly common. In fact, we had a large coalition within the Department of Justice advocating firmly that the president did possess such unilateral authorities in a ways that had never been tested, citing a case that actually didn't even, the Jacobson case, which did not grant the federal government the authority that they were claiming. Um, So Mike, what I'll tell you is, these are extremely unique times. They are, maybe not the word perilous, overwhelmingly challenging. And we need to take a firm look in the mirror at what kind of character and resolve will we be able to say that we had when we explain to our children and our grandchildren years from now, with the test on the willpower of what we're seeing today,
0: yeah, no, and very well said. Very, very, very well said. I agree with everything that you just articulated there. And I, I guess the reason why I say perilous, perilous times, is specifically on the the border issue. And the reason yeah. why I say that is because we have. And I want I want the audience to understand this because <laughs> you need to under, you all need to understand this. We have no idea. What has come across these borders into our country? Yep. That's why I mean perilous. And and as a as a retired FBI agent, I was I had a front row seat to what was what we did know was coming across the borders, and of course we we took great action to stop that and and get rid of that. Yeah. Uh, we don't have that anymore. We also have uh, an FBI that does not seem to be focused on the the. The threats that we have coming across the border, and we have an administration uh, right now that not only isn't preventing this from happening, but encouraging it to happen. I, that's, I guess, that's no. what. Just for clarification, no, that's you're what I meant on by perilous. Uh, on you're
1: that. absolutely right about that, and I can tell you that the so the Secretary of DHS has granted some pretty pretty robust powers as it pertains to the adjudication and approval of asylum claims, um, and what we're seeing now is an administration that is prioritizing political victories rather than what's executing the sovereign responsibility of the Department of Homeland Security and of ultimately CBP and many other supportive agencies in securing our southern border. Um, So I completely agree with you. We have this abuse and this over politicization of very, very broad authorities in a way that is not serving the American people. What I can say with certainty, I worked at DHS for three years and I have been to the southern border. I've worked with people at the southern border It is categorically worse than anyone understands. Whatever you see on the news, whatever you see on TV, the crossings, whatever the numbers and statistics that you're finding publicly, I promise you with firsthand experience and knowledge, it is worse. And if you don't believe, the easiest thing to do is to go to Arizona or go to Nogales or go to California, go to Texas, go to some of these other border states and talk to the CBP agents, the members of Border Patrol and Office of Field Operations and Air and Marine Operations. Talk to them. Talk to them personally. Ask them their stories. Ask them what they're seeing. And they'll tell you firsthand. And then offer your services up to go there and to actually see it with your own eyes. It is astonishing. This past month of December, we had, I believe the the recent numbers are nearly 350,000 contacts in a month. I mean, just unbelievable numbers that that are you know, seemingly fantastical. There's no way back during Obama's presidency, we were talking about rates that maybe had 50, 60,000 encounters in a single month. Now we're looking at you know, five to 10 times that in the current era. It's just astonishing. And yet we have a public servant appointed as a cabinet level officer by an administration indicating the border is secure. At some point, Congress needs to pony up and needs to, frankly, hold public officials accountable for a gross violation of public trust. I mean, there's no way you can look at the American people with an honest face and tell us that the border is secure. It's just not believable because it's not true.
0: You know what? And I think that's why it's important to have people in Congress with a background like yours and a background like mine, because, uh, you know, I let me see how I can phrase this. You know, because, like you just said, it's much worse than what people understand. You watch TV, yeah, of course, it looks bad. But when you go in person it is much worse than you expected. Yeah. And in the world that I work in right now, I work in a drug and alcohol uh, detox unit, and I've I've said the same thing, but as it applies to fentanyl, that is bad yeah. the public. There's no one in the public that doesn't know that, that fentanyl isn't a, a bad issue. By the way, it all comes across the border, so it ties to the border. Yep. But the fact is that as bad as you think the fentanyl problem is, Cameron, I can tell you, it is much, much worse than the average person on the street realizes. Now, I can go into Congress, you can go into Congress, and we can talk about these issues. And and I can look people in the eye and say, hey, this isn't just something I read about. I know this because I lived it. I, I experienced this. And... Um, you know, and bring the heads of these agencies in, who, by the way, are funded by Congress. And let's be very, very clear about yep. that. Whether it's the FBI, DHS, uh, DoD, whatever, um, they are creations of Congress, and I think sometimes we forget that we they they forget who created who. And yep. and and explain this to these people and say, look, uh, we are tasked with protecting protecting the American people, and you are going to do that, and we are going to hold you accountable for that. We have the power of the purse. We you know we can defund you. We can uh, move to have you removed from office. We yes, we can do those things, and yeah. we do. As you said, we need to have a Congress that is willing to step up and exert its authority. Because I keep, I think they forget that they actually do have authority to take certain actions, and they just don't.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Examples of that, you know, a long time ago, Congress put restrictions on federal agencies. For example, this is a key issue that I actually really like to bring up because I've I've had experience with it uniquely. Um, It's called 872 Reorganization Authorities. And so what Congress has done is they've they've put limitations on cabinet level secretaries with how they reorganize internally specific departments because it implicates potentially appropriations funding. Um, So when Congress passes its bills, its 12 appropriation bills, or when they try to cram one down our throats with these massive omnibus bills where they consolidate many of them, which is not being a proper fiduciary. Um, ultimately, Congress sets the payment. And the scope and scale of legislative language authorizing program x to do subject y to achieve goal z um, those unique terms and that unique power is suited with congress so when you have an executive agency that says you know we used to engage in this activity but now we'd like to repurpose it over here the, that old activity is no longer a priority or hey we have this activity we'd like to expand it make it more more robust because we think it better serves the american people this way or that way Congress has oversight authorities and when it pertains to a certain dollar amount or when it pertains to an actual reorganization of priorities and a new mission set, Congress has specifically restricted federal agencies from doing it without coming to seek their approval. Why? Well, because you essentially get a bill and you're, you know, this agency is asking you for the authorization to pay for certain services for certain activities of work. And then they change the terms. It's like paying someone to you know, reconstruct your bathroom. And then you find out, wait a second, you didn't fix the bathroom. You actually repaired my stairs. I mean, that's nice. It's good that the stairs were repaired, but that's not what we paid you to do. Um, So those authorities have been specifically restricted and Congress has very specific powers with how they can be implemented. And so, for example, Congress does have the authority to limit specific actions and functions engaged in by uh, by specific government programs, and it also has the authority to set contingencies and requirements and getbacks and things that are uh, basically holding uh, your funding in escrow, if you will, until a federal government program has the wherewithal to produce a report or a summary or a report of finding. And so sometimes it's, it's loosely applied, sometimes it's very explicitly applied. You will not receive programmatic dollar X that you asked for, until this report is produced and presented to Congress and approved again, very, very unique authority. And I'll be transparent. It's inconvenient. It's time in ineffective. It requires a lot of reading of legislative language. It requires a lot of nuanced and specific programmatic expertise. And so what we find now is that many of these bills have become so large and so burdensome that they're very rarely actually read by legislators themselves. instead they're read by staffers yeah they're read by support personnel and so what you have is a a huge infusion of language and an infusion of responsibilities by what a bureaucratic state that expands itself further because it allows for more research more study more investigation and analysis so it self promulgates and perpetuates to a point where it's not serving the people well Um, and that's where i agree with you mike We need principled conservatives that believe there are limitations in power to step up and to hold federal agencies to account when they've either exceeded their authority or when they've underperformed or when they've done so with a lack of accountability and transparency of where specific dollars and monies have gone and been expended as a proper fiduciary for the American people. Um, So those are things that Congress has the authority to do. And frankly, we've not been doing properly. We've let the executive get away with poor behavior and it's time we change that.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, switching gears a little bit, so tell us a bit about um, the, the 7th District, which is where you're uh, running. Um, where Where is that, you know, for the, the people that are listening, and um, just kind of tell us where you are in the campaign.
1: Awesome. Well, I'm, I live in Orange, Virginia. It is about three miles from where James Madison was laid to rest, and so I'm styling myself as a very very similar James Madison legislator. Um, you know, if Lord willing, if I'm elected, that's that's exactly the, the kind of historical character and, and reference of what I would consider an honor to emulate. Uh, James Madison, who was not a perfect man, but again, believed very much in the restraint of power. And right now, the Virginia 7th, because of the rezoning and the redistricting that's occurred uh, recently, it goes from Greene County, Madison County, Orange County, Spotsil- or Culpeper County, Spotsylvania, fredericksburg caroline king george up to stafford and then the eastern portion of prince william county so it it makes a big kind of u-shape if you will underneath virginia uh virginia 10 as well as virginia 11 and it even butts up right next to virginia 8 Uh, and then on the eastern flank it's on virginia 1 and then it's subbed by virginia 5 on the south so it's kind of a unique area in Tranche. And then Virginia 6 is actually a little bit further to the west of us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of a very unique area, about 900,000 voters, give or take. Uh, normally, we see about five hundred to 600,000 participate in the process. But uh, yeah, it's a really unique area. Where I'm at in the campaign is I'm running for the Republican primary. Primary will be in June 18th. Yep. Um, and so I'm running as a firm, Constitutional Conservative, in a very unique lane, building an extremely broad coalition, and that's because of my very pro-business philosophy and approach on restraining intrusion, reducing regulation, and really opening up our economy in a way so that we can boost GDP, save money through um, restraint and through spending cuts uh, to ultimately expand our economy in such a way to pay down this debt and put us into a better standing.
0: How, how many candidates are running on the Republican side as of now?
1: Oh, boy. Right now we have eight. Uh, eight? Um, Lord knows if we have we have eight right now. Lord knows if we have any more that will get in the race. We have had one or two that have dropped out, um, and likely we will see more that will drop out um, in the coming weeks to months. Uh, that's subject to a lot of different parameters, so I'm not sure how many we'll ultimately have that qualify for the ballot. Right now everyone's in the push to qualify with signatures, and so we'll see how that goes. We'll see once you know we have qualifiers on the on the ballot bill. That'll tell us what the final number looks like. And that'll be sort of the last push, yeah. the last period for qualifications in March. And then I believe all the paperwork is submitted and then ratified and fully accepted in April.
0: Yeah. Uh, for those of you that have never run for office, this is quite, there's a lot to it. There, there's a lot to this whole process. And um, your, now how would you compare and contrast yourself to the uh, incumbent here? And
1: you may want to tell us a
0: little bit about that. Absolutely.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So the incumbent is currently Abigail Spanberger. Yep. She's a Democrat. She is uh, finishing her third term in office. She upended David Bratt, who is a representative here, who was elected in 2014 when he beat Eric Cantor in the Republican primary during the Tea Party movement. David Bratt then lost his reelection in 2018. Ms. Spanberger was seated that same cycle and then she's gone three terms uh, and so she is actually not seeking re-election so it's an open seat and it's in a district that is rated as a d plus one now miss banberger is publicly a very pleasant person to be around she has a very charming personality um, and she again has a very robust set of constituent services that i think are worthwhile of being credited so people feel that she's engageable and approachable her voting record however has been much more progressive than i think people realize And that's the subversive nature of some of the politics we have now. She's running for governor in 2025. So as a result, she's retiring from her seat. And it's an open seat, which is extremely unique. And it's an open seat that's within the margin of error. So a D plus one, by all attempts and purposes, is really a 50-50 seat. And so on the Democratic ticket right now, I believe there are between five and eight. Um, I've heard conflicting reports based upon who's actually filed. Uh, But really, there's a variety of different characters that we can go into later, and they're vying to achieve the Democratic nomination to represent the party in the general election in November. On the Republican ticket, right now, I believe there's about eight. Uh, We will see who actually qualifies for the ballot, but that will be who we push through to ultimately gain the Republican nomination and then go on to the general election in November.
0: Yeah, and so with her, and I had heard the same thing, that she's she's planning on running for uh, governor, and I, I think that's going to be interesting in and of itself because uh, there's a big push for there to be the first female governor in, in Virginia. As it, many of you know, we, we just had the first female African uh, uh, person of color, actually, lieutenant governor in Winsome Sears, and uh, now I think there's the push to um, run for governor. In fact, the the Going sentiment is that my former uh, uh, opponent in the state election, and that being Jennifer Carroll Foy, will will step up and run as well, and would be running against Spanberger. So that that will be interesting. Um, not heard a lot about who's going to step up on the Republican side to run for governor, but I'm sure that'll all pan out. But it, it, do you have any idea who sort of the front runners on the de- Democrat side are, and, and how would you compare yourself to them uh, policy wise? Uh, to, yeah. the, to their platforms.
1: No, that's a great question. There's a variety of different people. They they all range in different perspectives. The advantage that Republicans have now is that the progressive base has moved significantly to the left than when Ms. Spanberger ran in twenty eighteen. So they're gonna kind of get into a battle of wits over who can out progressive each other to achieve that nomination. What I will say is two of the more notable frontrunners, and they're not they're not the only ones there. Uh, but two of the more notable frontrunners is Elizabeth Guzman, who is currently a state delegate in Virginia. And then you also have Evgeny Vinman. So Elizabeth Guzman is a very radically progressive state delegate who is a an immigrant to the United States and has done very well for herself, but has radically different perspectives. For example, she co-sponsored a bill that was entered into the Virginia legislature that would have made it a felony as a parent if you did not affirm the transgender uh, reassignment and and actual medical procedures for your child if you disagreed with it or you believe they should wait until they're a consenting adult at the age of 18 uh, you could be held criminally liable in the in the Commonwealth now fortunately that was never adopted uh, but that shows you some of the priorities that they've, they've emphasized Yevgeny Vindman is the brother of Alexander Vindman there are two Ukrainian-born boys who came to the United States joined the armed forces And then ultimately enlisted in the army or, excuse me, uh, received commissions in the army and served in the armed forces as lieutenant colonels. Yevgeny Vindman. uh, So Alexander Vindman is the gentleman who testified under oath before Congress as it pertains to the phone call that took place with Trump on the Ukraine scandal when he was ultimately impeached. And so what we find here is his brother was also a JAG officer in the military. And it's being promoted by people like Adam Schiff and the actor Ben Stiller. And so Yevgeny is really looked at as sort of the celebrity candidate, if you will, because of the prominence of his and his brother's name um, as it pertains to pushing back against the Trump administration. Uh, And he's a very prolific fundraiser. I believe he's already raised over $2 million in this primary. So he's right now looked at as the presumptive nominee, not because he's the most qualified, or even because he's the most principled, he's neither, actually, but um, he does seem to have the biggest war chest and the biggest amount of robust Democratic support. Now, there are others. You have uh, Supervisor Franklin from Prince William County, among many others as well, who, who are notable, um, and we'll see how it shakes out on their end. I think it is a pretty steep competition, and at this point, I would be surprised if Mr. Vinman is not able to clear the primary just due to the sheer resources that he's being invested with.
0: Yeah. And that's, um, very interesting that he is, is running, um, his, his brother really threw himself into a situation that, you know, I can tell you as a military officer myself, I could not ever, ever see myself taking the actions that his brother took, um, we we can't have that. I, I don't know if you want even want to express any thoughts on that whole situation. I know it's his brother, but absolutely. Uh, do you um, have any thoughts? I don't want to put you on the well, spot. He,
1: well, Yevgeny was also he also worked as a JAG officer in the White House, and he he played a role in that whole undertaking as well with filing complaints and acting as a whistleblower. And I will say, there's a complete distortion of perspective because. They believed that the president was violating tenets of foreign policy that was unbecoming of the chief executive of this nation, and that he was trying to usurp power in a way that differed from traditionally held political perspectives and foreign policy decisions. They believed he was also trying to garner public support, or excuse me, uh, personal support in a way that was unethical. The problem is, they work at the pleasure of the president of the United States, and the president of the United States didn't violate any laws. Uh, the president of the United States was asking for a nation with known corruption issues to release information that may have been uh, damning on the the current president, who personally I believe is one of the most corrupt officials and comes from one of the most corrupt families ever to reside within Washington D.C. Um, and so, former President Trump was frustrated that there sees that there seemed to be business practices, and personal enrichment in Ukraine that was piggybacked and leveraged by American foreign policy and American foreign aid in a way that was just egregious and a violation of the oath of office for the American people. And so Yevgeny Vindman and his brother Alexander thought it was inappropriate for the president to dare question any of the previous circumstances and the previous diplomatic relationships with Ukraine and if go on a little further, we can get more nuanced into specifically what they did and how, but the point being, they had a disagreement with the chief executive of our nation, and they believed that they were ultimately in a position to dictate what foreign policy should be, and Mr. Vindman even testified to that effect as such, which is quite egregious. Um, so, in my opinion, these two gentlemen definitely violated their oath of office, definitely do not understand what it is to serve at the pre- at the pleasure of the president. Um and over-politicized and use their own personal positions to get back at a president that they did not support, nor did they like.
0: Yeah, uh, and I remember just watching that testimony, um, even to the point, if you remember, that he corrected one of the uh, members of Congress uh, who referred to him by his last name and said, it's Colonel <laughs> I'm, he's a military officer. I just, I, I, I still cringe at watching that yeah. whole testimony. And and it's just, ugh.
1: It's ironic uh, too, because actually the UCMJ does, and, and the the specific codes and regulations on titles and ranks and how to address someone in public settings, you are permitted to refer to someone as Mr. or Mrs., um, which is a perfectly legal means to refer to a superior officer or right. to an officer of a specific rank. So this was a member of Congress who referred to him as Mr. Vinman, um, again a, in a manner of respect. And again, Mr. Vinman felt it was becoming to instruct this member of Congress that he was not to be referred to as Mr. Vinman; he should be referred to specifically by his rank. Uh, there's nothing. There's nothing, you know. There's no formal recourse that could be pursued as though he was wrong in making that statement. Technically, it's it is wholly accurate that. A service member can request to be referred to by their specific rank, um, but it was just fairly arrogant. Yeah, and it was very it, petulant it was. in nature, and and I think it revealed some of the the manner in which their motives were impacting their decisions. Yeah, in this in this particular circumstance. And
0: ultimately, he was removed from his position, which he he should have been. And, and people correct. need to remember that when it when it comes time to to vote, and um, you know, folks, we, we get the government that we vote for, and. Uh, I think the challenge for all of us, I know it was definitely the challenge in my particular race, and and it's going to continue to be a challenge, is like-minded individuals. There's so many people out there, conservatives, that are just so disenchanted with our electoral, electoral process. And people ask me all the time, whether I think that the election was rigged. And um, here's here's my answer to this, and we'll get your thoughts on this, because this idea of whether the election was rigged or not actually had has an effect on voter turnout. And what I mean by that is, having just gone through a, a political race this last year, I had a lot of people, conservatives, people people that would, would otherwise vote for people like you and I, it was, I'm not going to vote. Uh, there's no point in me voting because my vote doesn't count because I know that the election is rigged. Now, here's what I do know. Um, I, I'm going to cover what I don't know, and, and then what I do know. What I what I don't know is if what they're referring to is the actual polling place and the the um, the machines that are used are they rigged? I don't know. I don't have evidence of that, but I do know this. I do know that our election electoral process has been very much compromised when we get into the mail in ballots, uh, the misuse of absentee ballots, which were designed. Uh, the purpose of which, and in, in the design was for people that are sent overseas by their government, whether you're a military or a government um, employee overseas, and you can't be in your district or you're going to vote. That was the intent. And then and then just the length of the voting. Um, in the state election, I had 45 days, Cameron, 45 days of voting. And that is, I actually don't know of any of the candidates, even on the Democrat side, that think that that's yeah, a good idea. just astonishing. It was just uh, if you've again, it's a great idea unless you've run for office. If you run for office, uh, you'll see very quickly how how uh, because you have to have volunteers, um, the the county offices that you were were all over the county. And you know what? The funny thing, Cameron, is I still had on day 45 on day 45, people still coming up to me and saying, who are you? What party are you? Oh, I'll take your literature and look at your opponent's literature and and read it and decide who I'm going to vote for. This is on day 45. Uh, oh, but having said that, having said that, those are the types of things because, you know, particularly with the mail-in ballots where you can't verify signatures, um, you, there's a lot of hands on the mail, and people just don't yeah. have any confidence. And that it, that really hurts us because people just say, well, if that's the way it's going to be, then I just won't participate. And we cannot yeah cannot have that happen in this election that's correct cannot have that happen but uh
1: what are your thoughts if you wanted if you wanted to steamroll people if you wanted to truly influence the nature of elections you would cause dissent and you would cause frustration and almost a sense of hopelessness i will say that we need to push past that we have to remember that you know david whether you're someone who believes in the scripture or not david marched out onto the field and stood against a philistine you know goliath who was a one of many brothers of, of renown, of a very specific ethnic origin who um, who were giants in stature. And David, a small shepherd boy, who granted was not a pushover. People tend to make him like a little schoolboy. You no, know, he was a man who actually killed a lion with his hands. Defending he was, a, his he was of an Navy seal. That's what it yeah, was. Of maybe of his day, exactly. <laughs> maybe, but maybe a little bit more compact in size. <laughs> um, so he was travel size, you know. But, uh, but that being said, David marched onto the field of battle with a boldness. You come against me with sword and spear, but I come against you in the name of the Lord our God. And so ultimately, our opponents in this political nature want us to feel that it is hopeless, that it is nothing you can do will change this. We're going to steamroll you, and the election processes are, are overwhelmingly corrupt. And you know, you just shouldn't trust it anyways. And I, it's difficult for me as a principled conservative to go along with this narrative because i know what the consequences are if we listen to this bad actor if we listen to the perspectives of some that would tell us to simply give up and walk home and not even participate they win and they win overwhelmingly because they've won before the game even even started they've convinced us to stay home and not even compete and instead what we need to do is to let bygones be bygones and push hard and aggressive and fight with the fury that we know we have. And so in this particular circumstance about voting, you're right, we've got a crisis on our hands because we have a lot of Americans that feel disenfranchised. Now, there are legitimate concerns over election integrity that I share, and specific reforms that can be implemented to bolster and boost integrity, accountability, and transparency of how our election processes are undertaken, and I think we'll find more participation. But let's not forget that we had Americans get up off the bench and come out and vote in alarming numbers when President Trump ran against Hillary Clinton in 2016, and we saw what that power can do. So it's time that we get off the bench again and we get active and say, you know what? If we think that there's fraud, or if we think that it's corrupt, if we think it's hopeless, I had a friend of mine, Nick Freitas, who's currently—he actually asked me to run in the first place. Um, you know, Nick asked me a huge honor because I think he's remarkable. He's my current delegate. Um, you know, when someone like that asks you to be his representative, that's a high honor that you, you listen to quite a bit. Um, but Nick makes a great point about, you know, even if you knew it was a losing battle, can you look your children in the eyes and not do what you need to anyways? And the point is, would you change what you do, even if you knew that you were going to lose? And the answer is, if we're a people of principle, then no, even if we know we're losing, even if we know it's futile we must continue to fight we must continue to push back because arguably when the candlelight revolution occurred in eastern romania when they threw off the communist government again a candlelight vigil in the public square turned into a complete toppling of their communist regime in less than 12 months nobody thought it could happen nobody thought that kind of freedom could be achieved and yet it did so the enemy wants us to think well i say the enemy Those that want us to be absent from the political process wants us to think that it's futile, that it's hopeless, that there's no way we can win and that the wind is against us, not at our back. And what we need to do is to push and to fight and to claw everywhere we can and not give in. We need to not give up. We need to be active and we need to vote like tomorrow depends on it, because to be honest, tomorrow does. Our nation is declining into moral decay. And we keep promulgating and pushing up more and more people who have poor moral character. We should expect a continued set of poor results. So long as we elevate individuals who are elected to office with that same kind of decline. Um, so we need to fight and we need to not give in, fight for reform and come out with the numbers and the droves that we know we actually have. Cause when we stand together and when we give people hope and we inspire them, we can do miraculous things.
0: Well, I, oh my gosh, I, I just, I'm getting goosebumps just listening to that because that's exactly how I felt. Hey, listen, I'm up here in the 11th district and I, uh, people flat out tell me they're, they're just, hey, Mike, you're not going to win. You're not, you're not going to, why are you running? You're not going to win. And when they ask the question, why am I running for office, Cameron here? You know what I tell them? I say, cause I love my country. Hey, that's no. it. I mean, what what else do you need to know? Is there any other thing? I'm not going to give you some long-winded explanation. I love my country. And the fact is that if I don't run the way that it looks right now, no one else is going to run. And just yep. like you said, I, I haven't given up on this country. I've served my nation from the age of nineteen until the age of fifty eight. That's all I've done is served my nation. Five times over. Five yep. times over. And I'm not giving up on the, on this place. And and just like you said, we need to have people of character stepping up to run because I for one, uh will not give up. And the sure way to lose is to not put anybody up against the these these Democrat candidates. That that's the Cowardous. sure way to lose. Yep. We do our mission, Cameron. We do our mission. We do our part. And the rest is up to
1: God. That's it. Amen. Amen. Cowardice is contagious, but so is courage.
0: That's right. That's right. I, well, it's a blessing to speak with you. Now, how can people get hold of you and check out your campaign?
1: Awesome, Mike. Well, look, I'd be honored. Um, I'd be absolutely honored if anyone would. If you just had one thing to do, I would say. Number one, spend time in prayer. If you had two things to do, well, then I would say, you know, go to my website and check out my campaign. That'd be really wonderful. Uh, That would be at CameronHamilton.com. And uh, if you go to the website, you can read about me. you You can read about my family. And I would ask you to watch my campaign video. It's a good way and a good insight into seeing who I am and what makes me tick, why I'm doing this, why I believe that America can reclaim some of the glory that it had previously and that we really... Can put the past behind us and fight for a better future, because we've done things that are that are that are good, done things that are bad, but there's so much to hope for in this country. So, cameronhamilton.com is the best way to get a hold of me. There you can find me online. You can find me on Twitter, and Facebook, and all that nonsense um, that that everyone's promoting out here in the social media. yes, I even have a Truth Social account. But uh, but yeah, that's probably the best way to do it is yeah, cameronhamilton.com. Yeah. And then if you had a third thing to do, so number one, pray. <laughs> number two, yeah, you come to my website. That'd be great. Number three, just be active. Just use the resources and the tools in front of you. You think, well, I don't know what to do. Where do I go? I mean, I'm not a politician. I don't know how to do this stuff. Go to your school board meetings. Go to your board of supervisor meetings. Go to your town council meetings. Participate in your your local body politic. Read about the people that are setting your tax rates and your codes. Read about your state elections and then your statewide elections and then your federal elections and you build, go to your local GOP committee, you know, read about people that are active. If there's a particular issue that you find important that you connect with, for example, if you believe in school choice and you wanna support Moms for America or Moms for Liberty or any of those organizations, I would say, get involved, just read about them. If they have a rally coming up or a fundraising event, just go, you know, bring some baked cookies and meet people, meet patriots. You'll never know if you don't try. And so that's what I would say, do what you can, with the resources you're giving when you're able. And that's kind of a paraphrase of, of Teddy Roosevelt.
0: Yeah, no, I love I love it. I love it. And uh, I know you didn't ask this, but uh, I, I'll point it out that, you know, folks, having run for office, I can tell you this, it's it, it's not for free. And none of us, Cameron, nor I, are multimillionaires coming in. In fact, I'm not even a single mil-
1: a millionaire. Forget about multimillionaire. <laughs> no. Um, in fact, I gave up my federal job and my pension to do this because yeah. I'm a federal government employee, so I'm definitely not a millionaire.
0: No, no. And it just, listen, if you're, if you're so situated and you can afford to do so any little bit, I mean, $5, $10 or more, if you're, if you're so situated, please, please help Cameron, please help me. Please help all. You know, listen. We, we do our part. Ca- Cameron's doing his part. He's sacrificing his his life, his family. You know, time of his family. I, I I cannot say this enough. I should write a book about what this whole experience was like. You sacrifice so much when you run for an office, and you know. But we do that because we're, we're patriots. That we're we're service people. This is what we do. But all we ask is um, help. Help in any way that you can. You just mentioned that, you know, you articulated that in a great way, Cameron. That is go to meetings, pray, um, support us with your talent. Um, and then also if if you have money to help out, do that as well. So um, please do okay. because this is a uh, Cameron. It's so exciting to talk with you. We've met many times offline and, um, you know, go Navy, go Navy. Hey, there you
1: go. Go Navy beat Army. (laughs) Hopefully we can pull that one out this year. We've gotten Uh, spanked the last couple of years, so hopefully we can change that. But Mike, God bless you, brother. You too. Thank you so much for having me on. You're a man of character, and I I really look forward to... So campaigning with you my brother
0: you too you guys and you all take care and check out my website as well vanmeterforvirginia.com and I look forward to seeing all of you soon we're going to have Cameron back as well because uh, this is going to be an exciting time and I'm a believer in Cameron absolutely 100% and guys you take care of yourselves this is Mike Van Meter from Mike Van Meter Show God bless America big year ahead we can do this take care